Hey, Christ City, just before I jump into Romans chapter one and we continue our series here on idolatry, just a couple of things uh, that that we want to make you aware of. Uh, One is that the public health order has changed and we are now allowed limited gatherings on Sunday. And so we are gathering on Sundays now. You can register for that midweek. Check that out. Uh, Follow the emails that, that are coming out of the office and you can get registered for one of our gatherings on Sunday. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship word and sacrament. And the other thing is, as we are now coming back out of this and we see the phased plan that the government has in place, uh, and we anticipate, you know, by fall coming back to full gatherings once again uh, in Jesus' name, we also know that there's going to be massive opportunity for you to serve. And a lot of you have already asked and reached out. It was so wonderful to pastor a church full of people who just want to serve. We're going to be letting you know the opportunities to serve, all the different teams that we're going to have to restart and some new teams that we want to maybe bring in. And so you can just stay tuned for all of that. We're going to let you know what those opportunities look like as the days and weeks and months go by. So thank you so much. Again, if you have any questions about any of this, just email us info at ChristCityChurch.ca. All right. Uh, to jump into the message today. Technically, this is the second sermon in a new series of messages here on idolatry, but really I started this uh, two weeks ago by concluding the letter of 1 John, by looking at 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, where John writes to the church there, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We talked about idolatry, we looked at what it is, why it matters, and what to do about it, and that message was intended to be really foundational for this whole series and to kind of orient the conversation that we're having about idolatry. So if you missed that, let me just encourage you to engage with that on our YouTube channel, or you can get that on our audio podcast as well. And then further to that, let me just say this. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're discouraged, and and maybe you're feeling even a little defeated in your walk with God, you're maybe dismayed and surprised at times with the way that you respond to particular situations and circumstances and that maybe are bringing out the worst in you. Maybe it reveals all kinds of fear and anger and distress and worry, things that happen when your life gets jostled and shaken about. Can I just tell you, we're doing this series for you. We're doing this series of messages for all of us who can't seem to get it together on a consistent basis. Doing this series of messages for all of us who overreact to certain kinds of situations. Maybe later then we ask ourselves, why did I respond so poorly to that? This series is for all of us who tend to forget who we are in Christ. This series is for all of us who hide from the things we fear. It's for those of us who turn into bullies when we feel a loss of our sense of control. Those of us who are heartbroken when we don't gain someone's approval, who Avoid discomfort and challenges at all costs. This series of messages is for all of us who can't figure out why we're hung up on certain things and can't seem to grow beyond them. We just keep repeating the same errors over and over and we're having a hard time changing. This is for us. We're doing this series for all of us who are tired of trying to manufacture heart change in our own strength. And we're doing this series so that we can get to the issues that are underneath the issues and allow the Holy Spirit to do some heart surgery as it pertains to our faith life and all the things connected to that in our lives. We're doing this series of messages for all of us who have become way too easily satisfied in our life of faith and for some of us who have grown bored of Jesus. 
Some of us who get more excited about the next little weekend trip that we're planning or the vacation that we hope to plan one day, we get more excited about those things than we do about the truth of the reality that the creator of the cosmos, the God of all salvation, is actually waiting for us to commune with us in prayer. Because whether you've wrestled with this idea or not, I just want you to know that idolatry is stealing your joy and it's robbing God of his glory. And when we cast down our idols, we will see and experience more of the promises of God at work in our lives. And that's why we're doing this series of messages. We're preaching this series so that we will understand the biblical pattern of change so that we can grow as individuals and so that we can help one another grow as a community. That's what we're on about here. And so to that end, today, I want us to look at the origins of our idolatry. I want us to look at the renewal of our minds and the redemptive reversal. The origin of our idolatry, the renewal of our minds, and the redemptive reversal. Most of my time is going to be spent in the first point. So when I'm still in my first point many minutes from now, don't worry or be concerned with being late to your next appointment. Don't worry. The second and third point are short. All right. The origins of our idolatry. The text that you heard read from Romans chapter 1 already today introduces us to the origins of our idolatry by showing us two things that we do with the truth of who God is. Two things that we are prone to do with the truth of who God is. Look at the first one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See that. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the first part of the origins of our idolatry is our suppression of the truth of who God is. See, by nature, Romans chapter 1 tells us that all humans are natural truth suppressors. You say all people. Yeah, that's what he's getting at here in Romans chapter 1. All people on this side of the Garden of Eden, all people on this side of the fallen condition of humanity where sin has entered into the equation, where the relationship between humanity and God is broken, all people are quite naturally truth suppressors. What he's saying is that we suppress the truth that we know about God. We all suppress the truth we have. That's what this passage is telling us. And the truth that we have has been plainly made aware to us. See, the whole earth is filled with his footprints and the echoes of his voice and the marks of his existence and his presence. That's God's glory. It's the outward shining of his invisible presence. And Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Rome, says all of us can see it and we are all left without excuse when we fail to honor God. We take the truth we have and we suppress it. Okay? It's in our, in our very nature to take the truth of God that we have and press it down. And the idea of truth suppression here, I just want you to see it's not passive. It's a continual and aggressive striving against the truth. That's what he's arguing for. The first part of the origins of our idolatry is the suppression of the truth of who God is. 
Okay. The second part of the origins of our idolatry is our exchanging of the truth of who God is for the worship of something or someone else. It's exchanging the truth of who God is for the worship and the elevated status of something or someone else. Look at the passage, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because, notice this, they exchanged the truth of about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he's telling them that the universal default mode of the human heart apart from the saving work of Jesus is idolatry. It's truth suppression and truth exchange. But what I'm arguing here is that that kind of idolatry follows us into our Christian life and it's this kind of idolatry that we find to be at the root of our sin and disobedience. It's a truth exchange. It's the elevation of something or someone else to the place of God and God alone in our life. So please hear me, Christ City. I love you. You only have one heart throne in your life. One place of preeminence and prominence in your life. And that place belongs to God and no other. And he doesn't share. To elevate anyone or anything else to the place of preeminence and prominence in your life is by definition idolatry. It's an issue of who or what is functionally enthroned in your life. And it's what happens when we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Let me remind you of the definition I gave you two weeks ago from Elise Fitzpatrick in her book, Idols of the Heart. She said, idols aren't just stone statues. No, idols are the loves, thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. They are the things that we invest our identity in. They are what we trust. Our idols cause us to disregard our heavenly father in search of what we think we need. Our idols are our loves gone wrong. All those things we love more than we love him the things we trust for our righteousness or okayness. Okay? And, and here's the point of what I'm trying to show you from Romans 1. What I've called the origins of our idolatry, what, what we can do is we can actually allow them to become diagnostic questions to ask ourselves to discern the state of our heart. These can become diagnostic questions for our heart condition. I said the origins of our idolatry are truth suppression and truth exchange. See, we find ourselves headed toward idolatry when we suppress some truth about God. We find ourselves trapped in idolatry when we exchange the truth about God for the lie of worshiping or wrongly elevating something or someone else to the place of preeminence and prominence in our life. When we put someone or something else on the throne. Okay, I don't think it's that hard to think through. I don't think it's that complicated to ask ourselves these diagnostic questions. It's actually really simple. Right? 
It's not that complicated. It's not easy, but it's simple. You can trace the origins of your idolatry by asking yourself, what truth about God am I suppressing? And what truth about God am I exchanging? What truth about God am I suppressing? And what truth about God am I exchanging? Okay, sit with that for a minute. Okay, truth as we understand it in the New Testament is not just something you make mental agreement with. Okay, it's something you live and obey. So when you disobey God's commands, you are in some way suppressing the truth of who he is. When you disobey God's commands, you are somehow exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping something or someone else. We, we call that idolatry. This is Martin Luther, you know, 500 years ago, wrote something tremendous, I think, on the Ten Commandments. He said, you never break commandments two through nine without, or two through ten without first breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. See, all of our sin comes out of a disordering of our worship. And so if we keep Christ elevated and we keep God on the throne in our life, we tend to not struggle as much with these consequential sin issues. But it's when we mix up and you know, have wrong priorities in our life where we suppress the truth of who God is and we exchange the truth about who he is for some kind of lie, that's when we get ourselves into idolatrous trouble. So let me explain. Years ago, before Alistair and I were married, um, I was discipling a young guy who had just joined our youth ministry on the arm of one of his friends who had brought him along. He seemingly had a profound encounter with God, and he began to testify about that all over the place, everywhere he would go, until about a month later, maybe, maybe six weeks or eight weeks later even, where he just ghosted me. He stopped returning my calls, he quit showing up to youth, he wasn't present at our church gatherings on Sunday, and I chased him, pursued him for quite a while, and eventually we talked, and he said he decided that Christianity wasn't for him. And I asked him why, and he told me that Christianity was suppressing his sexuality. We met and we talked a lot about this, but in the end, he said he couldn't reconcile the truth of who God was revealed to be and the salvation that he knew he was offered in Christ. He, he couldn't reconcile that with the reality that following Jesus meant he couldn't just be Savior, but also had to be Lord. He was having a hard time connecting these two. He wanted to walk with God, but he didn't want to change or give up any of what he perceived as his freedoms. He couldn't imagine that God would command him to do something that he did not want to do or stop him from doing something that he wanted to give himself to. And so his answer was, this must not be for me. So let me ask, what truth was he suppressing about God? What truth was he suppressing? See, fundamentally, he understood what it meant to follow Jesus, but he counted the cost and he just found it too high. Because it meant that there was part of him that would need to die in order for him to live for Christ. He wasn't willing to do it. He didn't think it was worth it. To him, God couldn't be the good God that he was trying to follow and know if God expected him to deny himself something that he loved. He didn't believe in God's goodness and he didn't trust that God was at work in his life for his ultimate good. Not his momentary temporal good, but his ultimate good. Those two things aren't at odds. The commandments of God are good for us. So he suppressed the truth because he did not want to align his life with the revealed will of God. 
And you ask the second diagnostic question. What truth about God was he exchanging? Listen, in no uncertain terms, he exchanged the truth of God for the lie that his sexuality would make him happier and more fulfilled than walking with Jesus. So he walked away. Anything you exchange for God is a lie and will not deliver on the promise, and it certainly will not save. Okay, one more. I could probably tell stories like this for a while. One more. Years ago, I knew a pastor who recently, he either stepped down from his role in the church he was leading or he was asked to step down. I can't remember the details, but it was pretty clear that pastoral ministry was bringing out the worst in him and everyone involved thought it would be best for him and his family and for the church if he moved on. So he did. He did. Um, It was kind of an issue that he didn't want to address some of the heart-level stuff that was happening within him. And the heart-level stuff was what making, that was what was making the role in the church a a negative experience for him in the church and, and, and for his family. And what he figured was a change of scenery would fix everything. So he thought he was working really hard and laying his life down to serve God and serve God's people. But those who were closest to him believed that he was a workaholic who was deriving his identity from his success in ministry and that he was working like this as a means to gain the approval of others in his life. So he changed jobs and and within a year he was very successful at his next venture. And this is what he said to me. He said, what I was being chastised for in ministry, my ambition, my drive, my desire to succeed, all the things that make me who I am, he would say, all the things that I was being challenged about, these are things that were rewarded in my new job. I'm doing really well and I'm making lots of money. Okay, what, what he actually said was, things that in pastoral ministry were considered vices are considered virtues in my new job. Things that everyone was telling me to put to death in my old job, they're telling me to continue and increase in my new job. And I like it. See, what he didn't realize was his newfound success was killing his soul. It was destroying his mental health, it was harming his marriage, and it was shipwrecking his faith. See, see, not every idol is going to have the same stigma. Most of us who follow Jesus can agree that our sexuality needs to be brought under the confines and the care of the Lordship of Christ. Most of us think that a life of selfishness and greed and anger and violence and a whole list of other things, that they're quite bad. But what's wrong with being successful in your field of business or industry? Idolatry is not just surrendering your life to something that is blatantly outside of God's will. Idolatry can be turning a good thing into an ultimate thing and then laying your life down to get it. Who is functionally Lord of your life? So let me ask, what truth about God was he suppressing in this instance? Well, he fundamentally believed that he would be happier and more fulfilled if he was successful. And in particular, in this case, if his church was a certain size, he would know that he had arrived. He built his whole identity on that, which meant he was willing to do whatever it took to secure that success, even if it harmed him and those who were closest to him. His view of God was not as a father who took great pleasure in his beloved son, but his view of God was one of a master who demanded more and more of him before he would receive his approval. He was suppressing some of the truth of who God is. 
And the second diagnostic question, what truth about God was he exchanging? Well, he exchanged the truth of God for the lie that his material and vocational success would make him happy. And that if he was successful, he'd be in control of his life and he could live with security and comfort. See, idolatry doesn't always mean you're completely walking away from God, but it means you're trying to shove someone else or elevate someone or something else onto that heart throne in your life that is meant for God and God alone. And, and, and for some of you, that's why you're bored with Jesus. You're bored with him because you've suppressed the truth of who he is and you've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and you've elevated something else to a place of prominence and preeminence in your life And Jesus is kind of a secondary or tertiary issue, and you're sort of bored with your faith. Idolatry of the heart is suffocating your faith life. So hear me. Drifting away from keeping Christ at the center of your life is actually the first step in the wrong direction of cultivating idolatrous substitutes for God. Let me me say it again. Drifting away from keeping Christ at the center of your life is the first step to cultivating idolatrous substitutes for God. G.K. Chesterton said, when we cease to worship, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. That should stick. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. It's not just people who walk away from God completely. It's some of us who settle for kind of a mediocre middle-class faith. Comfortable, okay, everything's fine. It's because we've forgotten how much more God offers us in Christ. I want you to have more than an average desire for God. That's what I want for us. I want us to crave his presence, seek him with our whole heart. It's like, don't settle for some kind of vanilla, beige, common, average, boring, safe, comfortable life of faith. Come on. There's more. So Christ City, let me ask you a question. You don't want me to ask you, but I'm going to ask you anyways because it's good for us. It's good for me. When's the last time you took a risk and asked yourself hard questions about your Christian life? What are you afraid of? What if you asked yourself these two diagnostic questions from Romans chapter one, and what if it changed the trajectory of the rest of your days? What if? Dream with me for a minute. My dream for you is that a couple years from now, somebody comes up to me and and, and says to me on a Sunday, because we're going to be all gathering together and hugging each other and kissing each other, and it's going to be great. Somebody walks up to me and goes, you know what? You preached a sermon one time about Romans chapter one. You, You challenged us to ask ourselves difficult questions of our faith and figure out why we're bored with Jesus. So I asked myself, what truth about God am I suppressing? And I asked myself, what truth about God am I exchanging? And it changed my life. See, if you will allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life in this way, it'll blow your mind. You don't know what he has for you if you're currently suppressing the truth of who he is. You you don't know what he has for you if you're currently exchanging something else for him. All right, but what are you supposed to do about it? 
That's the origins of our idolatry. What are you supposed to do about it? Well, it's the renewal of our minds. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Later on in the same letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we see Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? There are two commands here in this one little verse. Two commands, a negative one and a positive one. There is a do not and a do. Negatively, he's saying do not be conformed to this world. Positively, he is saying be transformed by the renewal of your mind. All right, when Paul says do not be conformed to this world, here's what I think. I think he is anchoring that idea that we see here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, all the way back in what he explains to be the state of the world and the state of the human heart in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. That's what I think he's doing. I think he's anchoring that idea all the way back in chapter 1 and that it's connected to the universal problems that I've already talked about in the fact that we are by nature truth suppressors and truth exchangers. And he's saying conformity to the pattern of this world is agreement and alignment with what the world values and aspires to apart from God. Right? That value and aspiration that the world has apart from God manifests itself in the idolatry that I'm warning you about. Okay? But the good news here, the good news is, if you were committed to the positive command in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you're, com- you're committed to the be transformed command, it's very difficult to accidentally conform yourself to this world. That's the good news. If you're actively working toward the renewal of your mind, you will automatically be living in such a way that you are not conformed or shaped into or by the wrong thing. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. Okay? This implies a four-letter word that some of us can shy away with, uh, away from when it comes to our faith life. Okay? It's W-O-R-K. It's work. And some of us are allergic to that as it pertains to a lot of areas in our life, but especially things that we think are secondary and tertiary. And if we've grown bored with Jesus, we're not going to put in the work to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so this has got to become a new aim for us, a new goal for us, a new aspiration for us. Be transformed means work at it. Okay? It might shock you and it might frustrate you, but the renewal of your mind is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing pursuit. You are not a passive observer. You are an active participant in the kingdom. It's not just a process. Or, pardon me, it is a process. It's not just an event. The renewal of your mind is an intentional journey. It's not an arrival at a destination. That's why I'm preaching to a bunch of Christians through a camera right now about dethroning your idols. Okay, this is not a one and done thing. This is a progressive journey of transformation. You are transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our transformation as followers of Jesus is not going to happen by accident. This happens as an intentional pursuit. Now hear me, okay? lest you accuse me of something that I'm not saying. Okay? God's grace to us in Christ is something you cannot earn. It is a gift and you receive it by faith. 
Titus chapter three, verse four says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Okay, that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. That's wonderful. That's true. And what I'm saying here about the way you need to give some effort to it does not contradict the truth of the grace that we've been preaching at Christ City Church for almost eight years. But like I say all of the time, the gospel demands a response. And this is the response. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be at work. Aiming at, intentionally, the renewal of your mind. The late great Dallas Willard said, Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Hard work is not the opposite of grace. It's the result of experiencing grace. There's more to come. Dr. Don Carson said people do not drift toward holiness apart from what he calls, and this is beautiful, a grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. I'm saying apart from a grace-driven effort, We tend toward idolatry. Apart from a grace-driven effort, we gravitate to elevating things that are not God. Apart from a grace-driven effort, we tend toward suppressing the truth of God in some way, shape, or form. So we must give ourselves a grace-driven effort to search the scriptures to see who he is to commune with him in prayer, to experience the power of his spirit at work in us. All of these things. See, apart from a grace-driven effort, we tend to baptize our idols. We give them a little gold chain with a cross on it. We give them a Christian t-shirt. We dress them up. We bring them to church with us and we try to justify their pervasive and perpetual control over our lives when instead we should be actively working to not coddle our idols but dethrone them and put them to death. Man, we're so comfortable. Comfortable. The last 15 months have made us uncomfortable. My concern for us as a church is that we've become very comfortable in our uncomfortable new normal. But we're coming back. There's going to be changes in the world around us. And we need to be ready with the message of the hope of the gospel on our lips because the opportunities are going to present themselves for us to point people to Jesus. Dethrone your idols and be prepared to be used by God in this season. See, with no effort, you will be conformed to this world, but with a grace-driven effort, you will be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's what this is telling you. 
What we need to see is that the battle of identifying our idols and repenting of our idolatry and being transformed by the renewal of our minds, I just want you to see that it's not a once and for all thing. Our salvation is a once and for all gift of grace accomplished by Christ, but the renewal of the mind is a steady application of that once and for all truth. See, the gospel is both identity securing and identity transforming. It is an identity renewing experience, and it's ongoing. Gospel renewal is not something that happens in one hour a week. That's why if you ever get engaged with our biblical counseling ministry, the pastor of biblical counseling, Doug, he assigns homework. It's a grace-driven effort. The origins of our idolatry, the renewal of our minds, and very quickly, the redemptive reversal. If all that you heard from me today was Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 12, you might wonder uh, where the power for the renewal of our minds in Romans chapter 12 actually comes from. You You might be concerned about that. How did we get from the problem to the renewal of our minds? Well, While we've already acknowledged that there's a grace-driven effort required, I just want you to know that you're not alone in this. The power for dethroning your idols and repenting of your sin and being transformed by the renewal of your mind, it doesn't come from within like some sort of New Age Vancouver spirituality. The power for all of this comes from the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus. Right? So we don't, in the Christian faith, put the cart ahead of the horse, so to speak. Right? Knowing what to do and how to live only comes after you have heard what has been done for you. Your doing only follows after you have heard what has been done. Our doing in Christ only follows the finished work of Jesus. The universal problem of truth suppression and truth exchange in Romans 1 and being transformed then by the renewal of our mind that we saw in Romans 12, those are connected by chapters 2 through 11 where Paul unpacks the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus at great length. You don't jump from one to the other without going through the fullness of our redemption in Christ. See, the book of Romans actually helps us to understand this biblical pattern of change that we're talking about in this series. It diagnoses the problem and then it preaches the gospel of Jesus to us, the the power of God unto salvation, and then it tells us how to live. This is the biblical pattern of change that we're talking about. I talked about two weeks ago and we're going to talk about for the next four weeks to come. The put off, renew, and put on. We put off, and so we cast down our idols, we experience the power of the gospel and the renewal of our mind, and then we live that out for the rest of our days. Put off, renew, put on. That is the biblical pattern of change, and Romans shows that to us. What I want you to hear, just as we wrap this up, where we are prone to suppress the truth of God, I just want you to know, that Jesus came to fully reveal the truth of God in his incarnation. Where we are prone to exchange the truth of God for the lie, I just want you to know that Jesus had a different exchange in mind. His exchange was not the truth of God for a lie. His exchange was his life for yours. His exchange was his perfect record for your sin. His exchange was his death for your new life. 
See, this is the power of dethroning your idols. This is the source of the transformation of the renewal of your mind. You can't do this on your own, but until you know what Christ has accomplished for you, none of this is going to make any sense. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners, and it's the power for the transformation and the renewal of your mind. All right, let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. I thank you for the freedom we have to cast down our idols. I thank you, God, right now for the power of your Holy Spirit present with us wherever we are on this planet. Whether it's being heard on the day that this video is released or it's being heard later on, whether it's being discussed in house church or whether it's being kind of individually taken in in the darkness of night by people who are looking for the truth of who you are, I pray your power would come now in Jesus' name, that they would encounter you as the living God and that they would yield their hearts to you in great and tremendous ways, that you'd be glorified in all of our lives and we collectively say a big amen. Now, if you're gathering with your house church and you're going to celebrate communion, that's wonderful. Uh, The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus are evidence to us in the way that we take the broken bread and the wine. They point us to the reality of the work that Christ accomplished in that exchange on our behalf. It's only through his finished work that we have reconciliation with God our Father. And it's only through his finished work that we've received the gift of his Holy Spirit. And so I just want you to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, repent of your sin, cast down your idols, and celebrate to the glory of God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take communion, but send me an email. It's brett at christcitychurch.ca. I would love to talk to you about what the Christian faith means and how you can become a follower of Jesus. Thank you.